Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I want to read from John chapter 11, the first six verses, but notice the third verse is our text this morning. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now here's our text. Therefore his sisters sent unto Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Although Jesus loved this little family in the village of Bethany, yet sickness had touched this happy home. Consequently, in their extremity, they sent to Jesus with this message, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. I wonder how many times believers in Jesus since that day have repeated these words in prayer for some loved one or friend. Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. I know that I've had multiple occasions this very week to apply to Jesus on behalf of different ones in our church family who have physical ailments and struggles. I've said this on many occasions this week, Lord, he whom thou lovest, or she whom thou lovest, is sick. What a tender message this is. Lord, the one that you love is sick. I want us to notice three things this morning about this particular subject of sickness. First, sickness is surprise. Secondly, the spiritual struggles that are associated with sickness. And thirdly, some divine supports for our sickness. First of all, let's talk about the surprise of sickness, and we see that thought in the little word, Behold, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. The word behold in the Bible is an exclamation. It means to take special notice, and it expresses an element of astonishment or surprise. Mary and Martha sent to Jesus with this message, Lord, behold, as if it's something that they did not expect. He whom thou lovest is sick. When sickness invades your life, it is sometimes shocking, isn't it? I remember approximately six years ago when I sat in the doctor's office and he informed me that my test results had returned, indicating that I had cancer. I remember leaving the doctor's office and finding a safe place to pull off the side of the road and park. And for just a few moments, I felt the shock. I was momentarily stunned. Of course, I know that we're living in a real world. I know these things happen. I know I wasn't the first person ever to receive such a diagnosis, but 
I also know that there is a certain amount of surprise when sickness or disease or illness strikes your life. Now, the presence of illness and disease in this world should not surprise us because we're living in a world that is under the curse of sin. We know that, don't we? Ever since Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden, this world has had its share of problems. It is not paradise anymore. It's not a perfect world. And perfect health is not a blessing that has been promised for this world. It is a promise for the next world, perfect health, but not in this world. So we know that sickness is inevitable in this world. Furthermore, it's no shock that various forms of sickness would touch your life or mine because we are just human, aren't we? We're only men and women. There's a verse in 1 Peter 4 that has to do with persecution, but I think the principle applies to all forms of trouble in our lives. It says, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing had happened to you. I would say to you today, don't be surprised when you have a flat tire or when your washing machine goes on the blink or your transmission fails. There's no reason to say, why does this always happen to me? I have news for you. It happens to all of us. Don't be surprised when your life is not trouble-free and hassle-free. Realistically, we understand, don't we, my friends, that it's not a strange thing when sickness or any other form of trouble touches our lives. Why would I think that I should be exempt from the same effect that pathogens and genetic mutations have on other people? No, my friends, I am not immune, neither are you. So the presence of sickness in our lives and in this world should not surprise us because we know that this world is not the Garden of Eden anymore. The surprise that is expressed in this word, behold, I think is captured in the message that they give to Jesus when they said, behold, Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. And obviously the question in their mind is if the Lord does indeed love our brother Lazarus, then why is he sick? They're perplexed about how a lingering and painful illness, debilitating illness, is consistent with God's love. And may I say that that's a surprise or a shock or a perplexity that you may have felt as well. Lord, if you really do love me, why have I had such trouble? If you love my family and my loved ones and the church, why do we have struggles along the way? There is a perplexity. That's the surprise that is, I think, implied in the way that they worded their message to Jesus. Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. And there are two answers to that question. First of all, again, sickness and infirmities to be expected in our lives here. You and I are not exempt from suffering. Romans 8.23 says that the whole creation is groaning and travailing in pain together until now. Since the curse of sin, my friends, this world is writhing in anguish. We have disease, we have war, we have violence, we have bloodshed, we have suffering, we have human misery. This world is groaning in pain together until now. It's happening even at this present time. And notice the next verse, and not only they, but we ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Christians are not exempt from the same troubles that other men have. Not only they, but we ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves 
groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. The difference between them and us is not that our circumstances are better than theirs. The difference is that we have hope of a better world, which helps and sustains us in the midst of our circumstances here. My friends, if Job and David and Paul and Timothy suffered the affliction of sickness in their lives, we should not be surprised if sickness touches our lives as well. There's a hymn that we sang just a few moments ago that said it like this, God has not promised skies always blue. You see, we shouldn't live under an optical illusion to think that our life is going to be smooth sailing. That's not realistic. If you go out in the morning and your tire is flat, don't raise a clenched fist against heaven and be embittered against God, my friends. It's something that happens in a world that is imperfect. God has not promised skies always blue. Now, praise God, the sun does shine sometimes, nor flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. There are some thorns and thistles along the way of life, aren't there? You say, I don't like the thorns. I wish there were only flowers. Well, had Adam never sinned, there would be only flowers and sunshine. God has not promised sun without rain, peace without sorrow, joy without pain, but God has promised strength is our day. Now, this is biblical realism. He's promised you, my friends, strength for the moment. You say, I'm worried what will happen next week or next month. Well, my friends, Today has enough troubles to occupy us without borrowing from tomorrow's troubles. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. God has promised you strength for today. You say, well, what about tomorrow? When tomorrow comes, he will give you grace sufficient for tomorrow. He's promised rest when we labor and light on the way, grace for our trials, help from above, unfading kindness, and undying love. You see, the surprise, Lord, if you love me, then why am I struggling with this illness is answered in the realistic truth that sickness, infirmity, and all other forms of trouble are to be expected. And there's not a person here today who will be the exception to that rule. At some point in your life, you will fall and skin a knee. At some point, you will suffer a financial reversal, a relational crisis. There's not a one of us, my friends, who can expect a life that is free from pain and suffering. The second way I would answer this supposed surprise is the ultimate proof of God's love is the cross of Calvary, not the circumstances of life. 1 John 3.16 says it like this. Now, most people know John 3.16, but they don't know 1 John 3.16, which says, Hereby perceive we the love of God. Where can you see where can I perceive God's love? You say, well, I see it in the flowers and the birds singing. You're right. Those are all tokens of God's love. What about the hurricanes and the tort? You say, well, I don't see it there. What about the weeds that grow in the garden? You say, I don't see it there. There are circumstances in our life in which his love is not as apparent as it is in other places. But if you want to see God's love clearly, don't look at your circumstances. Look at the cross. For hereby perceive we the love of God. Here's where you can see it. 24-7, 365 days a year, in that God gave his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. My beloved, that's something that will never change. Meditate on the cross. Set up camp at the foot of the cross. As the hymn writer said, beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. Do you live there? 
You stay close to the cross? Do you meditate upon what he's done for your soul on a daily and regular basis, my friend? The ultimate proof of God's love is the cross, not our circumstances. You say, well, if God loved Lazarus, if Jesus loved Lazarus, then why is he sick? Behold, why is he sick? I'm astonished that he would be sick since you love him so. Well, my friends, God's love does not exempt us from suffering in this world. And may I say the ultimate disease is not an affliction in your body. The ultimate disease is sin, which afflicts our souls. And God's love has been manifested in the great fact that he has already dealt with that. You see, the sickness that's in our souls, not the rogue pathogens that invade our bodies, the deformity that cripples our hearts, not the malformation of our limbs, is what has eternal implications. That's the thing that is the most concerning. And Jesus has already dealt with that. The great physician has applied his cleansing blood to heal the disease of the soul. Bitterness is much worse than heart disease. A spirit of unforgiveness is worse than cancer. That spirit of envy that eats away at your peace, my friends, is worse than diabetes or asthma or gout or some crippling disease. It's one of the lessons Mark chapter 2 teaches us when Jesus, before he healed the lame man, said, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Then he healed him. You see, the disease that was the worst in his life was not his inability to walk. It was his guilt in his heart. And Jesus forgave his sins, then gave him physical health. You see, my friends, if you go through this life and your body is crippled, may I say that is just temporary. For you will be healthy enough when your vile body is fashioned like unto his own glorious body in heaven. But what matters most of all is that your heart is full of the love of God and the fruit of the Spirit, right? That's the disease that he's already dealt with. Still, though, let's be honest. Sickness is frequently the occasion of a spiritual crisis in our lives. It was so in Mary and Martha's case here in John chapter 11. If you look at the 21st verse of this chapter, it says, Then said Martha to Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, our brother would not have died. She is perplexed. Why did you delay? We messaged you to come. We know that you love us. Why did you tarry and not come immediately? Why didn't you hit the ground running and get over here as quickly as you could? Why did you wait two days before you came? Notice how she's at this point of spiritual crisis because of Lazarus's sickness. Let's talk for a few moments about some of the struggles that are occasions, the spiritual struggles that are occasioned by sickness when it touches our lives. I have on my library shelves at home a precious little volume by the late Anglican minister named P.B. Powers. And the volume is titled, A Book of Comfort for Those in Sickness. P.B. Powers was a 19th century Irish minister who studied in uh, England, and for 19 years he served Anglican churches near London. But in the year 1865, at the prime age of 43, his health entirely broke down, and Mr. Powers spent the remaining 34 years of his life as an invalid in retirement on England's southern coast. And during that three decades plus of uh, inactivity, when he was not able to minister anymore and he basically had to be waited upon by others. 
He wrote this book of comfort for others who are in sickness. Notice he continues to minister even though he himself is not able to preach anymore. And he does it in the only way that he can, through writing. He mentions several of the problems and struggles that often arise in other people's lives, and he knew this from his own personal experience, as a result of sickness. One of the things that Mr. Powers mentions in that little book is sickness may bring a feeling of uselessness into a person's life. I have to tell you that's the truth. I've stood at the bedside of many a sick person who used to be very active, and they say, I just feel so useless now. I can't do the things that I once did. Mr. Powers uses these words, there are few more distressing feelings than that of thinking ourselves to be useless. It's true, isn't it? This idea is very likely to take possession of the mind of a sick person. And the more active the life was in health, the more useless one feels to be when laid upon a sick bed. It is quite natural that when we see the train of daily life rolling off, we should feel sad at being left behind and the longer that we linger in such a state, the more it increases our feelings of uselessness. Mr. Powers knew that by his own experience. You see, he himself had been an invalid for many years when he wrote this book, and he knows what people go through. And if you've ever been laid up, unable to do the things that you once did, the things that were once important, and it may look like as the sickness lingers that you may never be able to return to the things that once occupied your life, you, you feel to be very useless. It's just a common natural thing. But you see, it becomes a spiritual crisis. And Mr. Powers counters this with the argument. You say, I feel to be so useless. His argument is feelings are not always an indicator of reality. You know, that's an important point to know. Your feelings are not always an indicator of reality. Most of the time our feelings are exaggerated, okay? You say, I feel useless. Well, my friends, the fact is there's nothing in God's world that is useless. Now, I know mosquitoes might fall into that category in some of our minds, you know, especially this time of year when we've had as much rain as we've had. You say, what good are those things? Somebody says this particular uh, part of your anatomy is useless or this, you know, why was it, why was it ever made or well, God has a purpose for everything in his world. And just because we don't know its purpose does not mean that it's purposeless or useless. Mr. Powers gives the example of how bones, once they have served their purpose in a chicken's body or maybe a cow or a hog, you know, and we eat the ribs or we eat the steak or we eat the chicken off the bone, and then we throw the bones aside, and you say the bones are useless now. They once served a purpose of giving a framework to the animal, and then they served a purpose of holding the meat that fed man, but once the meat has been consumed, the bones are fit for nothing but the trash pile. They're useless. But he says they may have another use to certain people. The manufacturer may be able to take those bones and use the fat from them, for a number of different products. The phosphorus that's extracted from the bones can be used for a number of products. The bones may be ground into fertilizer that will serve the field. In other words, Mr. Powers argues that there are diverse forms of new life that await the old bone. Even when it appears to have served its purpose, it may 
be repurposed for further uses. And his argument is the same is true for you. You say, my circumstances have changed. I can't do the things I once did. His argument is you can still, like the bone, be useful in other ways. Now, the person that says, well, I won't be satisfied with that. I want to return to my former life does not exhibit the right frame of mind, for we should always be willing to say, Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do in our current set of circumstances? But he can still use you if you're willing. You say, well, I'd rather have the visible role of supporting meat for the body rather than to be ground into fertilizer. <laughs> but oh, my friends, still the bone is useful. He cites in this argument against the feeling of uselessness, the verse in 1 Samuel chapter 30, the story where David's men pursuing the enemy after the enemy marauders had invaded Ziklag in their absence, and they'd stolen their wives and children and ransacked their goods, and David had failed to leave a garrison to watch the camp while they'd gone off to battle, so the enemy had overtaken it. And now they're pursuing the enemy to try to overtake them. 200 of David's soldiers, it says, were too faint to continue their journey. And so David told them to abide by the brook Besor and to act as guards or garrisons of the stuff, you know, of their provisions. You know, you stay here by the bags while the rest of us go fight the battle and we'll come back. Well, that's what happened. When they returned, however, some of the soldiers said those who didn't go with us to battle cannot partake of the spoils. We did all the work, we did the fighting, so we get to keep all the spoils and they didn't help us fight. And David said, nay, he says, as his part that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff, they shall part alike. The point is that the garrisons were just as important in the war as the foot soldiers. You see, they filled a role that was important as well. You say, preacher, I can't go to the battle anymore. All I can do is stay back here. Well, my friends, if you're doing what God has called you to do back here, you're still filling an important role. He also illustrates it like this. He talks about the mother who had several skeins of yarn, and they were bright, brilliant colors, red yarn and blue yarn and green and yellow. But then there was a skein of black yarn, and her little daughter did not want her to use the skein of black yarn because it wasn't as pretty as the green, yellow, and reds. And the mother said, no, my daughter said, you can't take it with you. This is very important. I'll show you why it's so important. So the mother completed the project almost to its finish, but yet still something was remaining. She asked her little daughter to come in and review the project, and the little girl looked at it, and she said, but mother, the men and the women and the children and the Animals have no eyes. And the mother at that point said that's where the black skein of yarn comes in and she took the black yarn and she sewed eyes and the picture came to life. You see, even the black skein had a role to fill. Mr. Powers then tells the story of Elizabeth who was 18 years old in a mining accident left her spine broken in three places. For the past 45 years after that accident, he says she has lived without any feeling below her waist. From 18 years of age, 45 years later, she's been paralyzed from the waist down. One leg completely bent underneath her. Of her large family, only her sister Abigail remains, he says. 
and she is over 70 years old and is deaf and dumb. Abigail has to turn Elizabeth from her back to her chest every day. Elizabeth, Mr. Power says, is the brightest Christian I've ever known. She's so full of rejoicing and gratitude. She said the other day, how good it is of the Lord to let the sun shine in my little window. She is favored by her neighbors. A poor woman who was dying asked Elizabeth to raise her baby, who was only a few weeks old, and Elizabeth did so until the child eventually died of consumption at the age of 14. One morning, Mr. Power says, a lady neighbor went to visit her and found Elizabeth lying on her chest with her hands outstretched on the bed, kneading dough to make a loaf of bread for her family. His point is simple. Be content and cheerful in whatever trouble you have. For those around you will see that your God sustains you and they will glorify him and perhaps they will learn to trust him too. You see, my friends, there's still a place of usefulness even though there's this tendency to feel useless. Another problem people have that's occasioned by sickness is the problem of depression. Somebody says, I'm sick. I hear from my friends and family. I see pictures on social media about all of their activities. I know that other people's lives are full of life and enjoyment. The sun is always shining brightly upon them. Meanwhile, I'm shut away in the dim light of these four walls that seem to be more of a prison than a home. For the rest of the world is enjoying their lives without me. The problem of depression. Another of the hymns that we sang this morning dealt with that issue when Joseph Scriven had written a poem to his sick mother. Mr. Scriven was in Canada. She was back home in England. But he wrote her this poem, and a copy of it was found in his trunk after he died, the old bachelor Scriven. And here's what he wrote to his mother to comfort her in her sickness. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Listen to the second verse. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. That's your answer, dear friend. Pray more. Worry less. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Take it to the Lord in prayer, for can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows bear? By the way, that verse in Isaiah 53 that says, He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows is quoted in the New Testament. He hath borne our sorrows and he's carried our sicknesses. Our sicknesses. Our griefs, our sickness often brings us grief, but my beloved, he's promised to bear our heavy load and to pay the cost. I've always loved that line in that song. He bears the heavy load and he pays the cost. Not only will he carry your burden, but then he'll pay the fare of it. You talk about a double portion. He bears the burden and then he pays for it. Oh, my beloved, the problem of depression is countered by this comforting thought that you have a friend that you can talk to in prayer. You say, well, Brother Mike, I feel the pain of loneliness. Mr. Powers writes, sometimes sick people have no friends who can be with them when they're sick. 
Life is very busy and there are few of our friends and relations who have not work pressing upon them, which must be done. They can't stay with us at all times and in all places. There are many hours in which we're left alone with our own thoughts. And he calls this the loneliness of illness. You know, I've thought about that when our country was locked down and as medical facilities, particularly nursing homes, were shut down, I visited the nursing home on several occasions only to be turned away and told that uh, I could not be admitted to visit our dear sister who is a resident there and my friends, may I say, I wasn't upset for my sake, but for hers. To know that she's shut away from the lack of contact with loved ones. Oh, what loneliness there is with illness and whether it's forced by some public rule or law or not, or whether it's just the simple dynamics of being sick and in a hospital and your loved ones can't be with you all the time for they have lives of their own responsibilities to meet. Sickness is a very lonely thing. Man was made by God for companionship. You say, well, Brother Mike, how do I deal with that? Mr. Powers says, remember how lonely your Savior was in his life. Jesus was alone in the wilderness of temptation. There was no human face for him to see, no human voice for him to hear, no human touch for him to enjoy. He was all alone. Then he was alone in many ways during his public ministry. Seldom did people understand him. Oftentimes he was ostracized. He came to his own. His own received him not. And then, of course, my friends, he was alone in the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane when even the disciples fell asleep and he went beyond them a little further and prayed alone as he bore the dread of the cross in his soul. Yet, my friends, did you know Jesus really, except for one moment on the cross, was never really alone? He said, as in John 10, 35, he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. And here's a fact, my beloved. You say, I feel to be alone in my illness. You are never really all alone. The hymn writer put it like this, never alone, no, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. The fact is, you and I are never forsaken completely. 2 Timothy 4, 17, Paul says, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all forsook me. Nevertheless, the Lord stood by me. And I want to say to you, my friends, that God's promised to be with you in some lonely cottage, in some forlorn hospital room, in some drab place where there's no sunshine and no friendly face. God has promised never to leave nor forsake you and me. I believe that promise. Now, it's hard, I grant you, in your moment of loneliness to think about that and to realize its reality. That's why we say that sickness occasions spiritual struggles. We feel to be left behind. We feel to be forgotten. We feel to be depressed, separated from friends and lonely. And sometimes, my friends, there's a feeling that because I'm sick, I'm a burden to those who must care for me. The feeling that I'm a burden to my loved ones, now, especially if sickness lingers. Mr. Powers writes, very often our illness makes us sad on account of the dear ones on whom we are made dependent, upon whom this illness must exercise some pressure. But then he counters with this argument. He says, but love, true love, does not keep an account of trouble. You know, that's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. Love thinketh no evil. That means it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. 
Instead, love rejoices at the opportunity to express itself in ministry to others. The person who really loves wants to serve. You see, the person who loves says he ain't heavy. He's my brother. And he also says another argument against this idea that I feel like I'm a burden to people that are serving me and waiting on me is that God has promised to abundantly reward those who minister to others in his name. We used that verse last week, Hebrews 6.10. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name and that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. Then he thirdly, he cites the fact that even Jesus was on the receiving end of ministry. Matthew 25, 36, he says, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you cared for me, you know. And they said, when have we done this? And he says, inasmuch as you've done it unto one of these, the least of my children, you've done it unto me. Yes, my friends, the spiritual struggle, I feel that I'm a burden to others, discounts the fact that this person loves me for Christ's sake, and that if Jesus would receive ministry to him from others, then who am I to deny others the opportunity to serve their Lord by serving me? Another spiritual crisis that may arise or be occasioned as a result of sickness is the problem of fear. Somebody says, Brother Michael, I'm just struggling with fear. I don't know how long this illness will last. I fear that it may never pass. Mr. Power says, then learn to live one day at a time. You see, Nobody can bite off the entire future at once. God has made us to live daily, to walk with him by faith, as we sang this morning, to live one day at a time, one step at a time. Give us, Lord, our bread for the next month. Is that what he teaches? Give us our daily bread. When the children of Israel were told to go gather manna, how often were they to gather it? Every morning, daily, except on the Sabbath. And my friends, it teaches us that God has promised strength is our day. You say, well, what if it never passes? It will. This too shall pass, if not in this life. Psalm 34, 19 says that God will heal you in the resurrection. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. There is no problem you have that will be eternal. Isn't that wonderful to know? It's momentary at its worst. The worst you can expect is that it will only endure for a moment. Weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So Psalm 30, verse 5. Somebody says, well, Brother Mike, what if this sickness kills me? The fear of death. What if I die with? What if this is the thing that brings me down? Well, something will bring every one of us down if Jesus tarries, Right? You see, the Christian's perspective on death is entirely different from the secular unbeliever. To us, as Paul says in Philippians 1.21, because to live is Christ, then to die is gain. Now, if this world is everything to you, if you're living for something besides Jesus, then death will be seen as an enemy. But, my friends, the true believer does not fear death because he understands that death will simply bring me more of what was my chief joy in this world. If to live is Christ, then to die is gain. And again, perfect health, I want to remind you, is not a blessing that has been promised to us for this world. So my beloved heaven will bring the greatest and ultimate healing of all. Finally, one of the spiritual struggles that is occasioned by sickness is the temptation to think hard thoughts of God. You know, the devil will use every occasion he can to sit on your shoulder and whisper in your ear that God must not love you if he's allowed you to go through this terrible valley of affliction. 
That's exactly what Paul was experiencing and he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he speaks of his thorn in the flesh. Now whatever it was, it was a physical problem. It's in the flesh. And it was a painful physical problem. It was is described by him as a thorn. I don't know if it was poor eyesight or rheumatoid arthritis or respiratory problems or high blood pressure or muscle pain and like lupus. Or I don't know if it was some kind of uh, deformation in his limb so that he couldn't use a limb properly. I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it was painful. A thorn in his flesh. And he prays three times that God would remove it. And God's answer is, no, I'm not going to take it away, but I will give you grace to bear it. My grace is adequate, sufficient, enough for you. And Paul says that this thorn was given to me to keep me humble, lest I should be exalted by measure. But he said, Satan took occasion of that thorn to tempt me to think hard thoughts of God. It was the messenger of Satan to buffet me. That word buffet is a sailor's expression which speaks of a ship that is tossed by waves hitting on this side, then waves hitting on that side. Paul said, I am tossed back and forth with the distress of this physical problem. It persists and I, don't, I want to be rid of it. But God said, no, you need it because there are lessons that can be learned from this that you can't learn in any other way and God has promised to help you through it. So with that, let's close today with just a couple of thoughts regarding several supports that God gives to those of his people who are in sickness. Here are several words of counsel I would give you. Number one, if you're in sickness, my friends, remember that your Lord is the great physician and healing is a real possibility. He is able to heal you. Paul wanted healing, but he didn't get his prayer answered the way he had prayed it. His prayer was answered in the way he should have prayed it. God knew what was best for him more than Paul knew what was best for him. And God knows what's best for you and me. You may know I've had respiratory problems since my earliest days, ever since I was uh, before school age, diagnosed with asthma early on, and take medicine every day. Now, sometimes people say, Say, I don't know what's going wrong with me. My head's all stopped up and I can't hardly breathe. And I say, welcome to the club. I've lived like that for 59 years. You know, and I, it's, it's normal to me, but others who've never experienced it, it's alarming to them. And there are medicines, praise God, for medical science that help me to live a relatively normal life. But still, I do have some debilitation, some limitations that others may not have simply because of the respiratory distress that I have. I know God is able to heal. And I've asked him to heal me, but thus far he's not been pleased to grant that, but he has given me resources to live, grace sufficient, adequate. You know, these are things I don't deserve. I'm so thankful I live in the modern world. If I had lived 100 years ago, I'd have been dead by now, no doubt. But my beloved, God is able to heal. I, I don't want to undermine that. And it's not wrong to ask him to heal you. So if you're troubled by some problem, my friends, say, oh, Lord, please raise me up, heal me. We know that Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 shows his healing ministry. That's a wonderful chapter where he begins the chapter with the healing of a leper. And then he heals the centurion's servant who was sick on his deathbed. Then he goes to Peter's house and his mother-in-law, 
Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and Jesus goes and lays his hand upon her, and he heals her, and she rises up and begins to minister to them. Then that evening, Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 says this, When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and he healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. One of the great promises in the Bible is not only is the Lord able to heal, and it's not wrong to pray for healing and then to be satisfied or content with whatever answer is forthcoming. For whether he heals or not, he will give you grace. The prayer of faith will save the sick. It didn't say will heal. That's important to notice. But James 5.13 does not say, and the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. It doesn't say heal. It says save, deliver. There will be deliverance in one form or another if you pray in faith to God. It may come in the form of a complete healing. It will, my friends, bring deliverance or salvation in your life in one form or another. But may I say here's another wonderful promise. If you're in sickness, and I found great comfort in this, Psalm 41, verse 3, God says, I will make your bed in your sickness. In other words, just like the nurse who makes sure that you're comfortable, God promises special, his special presence and his tender care to his little ones in their hour of need. Then secondly, I would say not only remember that your Lord has promised his grace and he's even able to heal, so trust him and pray to him for that, but do what Mary and Martha did. And when Lazarus was sick, they applied to Jesus in prayer. You know, Hezekiah did this in 2 Kings chapter 20. It says, that in those days Hezekiah was sick nigh unto death. And the prophet Isaiah came to him and said, Thus saith the Lord, set your house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. And when he said that, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I've walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. I mean, this news pulled the rug out from under him. And it came to pass before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him saying, turn again and tell Hezekiah, thus saith the Lord, I have heard thy prayer and I've seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. And on the third day thou shalt be raised up and go to the house of the Lord and I will add unto thy days 15 years and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And that's certainly what happened. He recovered because he prayed. Don't forget to pray. Are you lying on a sick bed? You can talk to God. You say, I don't have anybody to talk to. You can talk to the Lord. He listens. He hears. And it actually does something. It's not just to get a sympathizing ear, but my friends, he can actually help you. And then I want to say, consider the spiritual benefits that may arise to your life or mine because of the sickness did you know God is able to use that sickness to teach you valuable spiritual lessons that you wouldn't otherwise learn? The greatest lessons I've learned in my life have come during the times of trial, not the times when everything was going well. It's the hard times that he's really taught me that he's faithful, that he's dependable. Psalm 119 verse 71 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I've kept thy word. And sometimes our sicknesses can teach us, my friends, to be more serious in serving the Lord. Next, meditate often, if you're sick, on heaven and the saints' everlasting rest that is awaiting you. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, 
was crippled with arthritic pain for many years in his life. And in order to deal with that, he covenanted to spend 30 minutes, a half hour every morning, meditating specifically on heaven and writing down the thoughts that he had. That became a book entitled The Saints Everlasting Rest. He said that he found great peace in meditating on what was awaiting him, thinking about what the Bible has to say about that city of pure gold where the roses never fade. Heaven must be a wonderful place. Yes, my friends, heaven is real. Don't ever forget it. In fact, how did this story in John 11 end? Lazarus, the one that you love, is sick. How did it end? Jesus raised him from the dead. And my beloved, may I say, that's how your story will end too. That you will be raised, you'll be resurrected when Jesus comes again to spend eternity with him in glory. Finally, this morning, here's a divine support for people in sickness. Every day, don't forget how much Jesus loves you. Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. Think about that tender thought. You know, that's, again, what I've said to the Lord about Brother Cecil and Brother Scott and Brother Dean and Sister Rhonda, Corey, Sister Lisa, and others this week. Lord, this brother, this sister that you love is sick. You know how wonderful it is for you to think about the fact that he loves me? He loves me, this I know. He gave himself to die for me because he loves me so. His love for you, his love for me, my beloved, cannot be exaggerated. I cannot even begin to explain how much he loves you. You say, well, where's the proof of it, Brother Mike? The nails in the hands and in the feet, the tender brow crowned with thorns. Oh, my friends, never forget it. He has loved you with an everlasting love. He has taken care of you when you didn't have the sense to take care of yourself. He has never abandoned you or me. He has filled my life with goodness. Sometimes I get into the complaining mode and start looking at all that's wrong. And then I look around and I think, what blessings are abundant in my life? Uh, look at my family and my children and my residence and my clothing and my food and the opportunities I have to get around and the people that are my friends and the opportunities for ministry. And I just begin to count my many blessings. And I listen to the dove call for its mate. And I watch the hummingbird find its nectar. And I see the cats chase the mice. And I hear the mockingbird in the woods and I see the sunset with its colors on the sky and I taste the fruit and its sweetness and I think my life is full of the goodness of the Lord. God's love for me cannot be measured and for you. My friends, never forget, he whom thou lovest, just because you're sick doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. So think about how much he loves you and me. The love of God.